Can you please thank this team one more time? They did a great job. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, it's page 1133 in your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. And in this passage of Scripture, which I'll uh, dig into a little more in a few moments, the Apostle Paul is telling the church, the church at Corinth, to look out and care for those who, weak, who are weaker in the faith. To look out and care for those who may be struggling over issues that may not be a struggle for you, but may be a struggle for someone else. And the Apostle Paul is saying that if it is a struggle for someone else, then you should give that up because you do not want to do anything that would cause another brother or another sister to stumble in their faith. The primary example that I'll use today and really spend quite a bit of time on uh, focusing on is the issue of alcohol. And why in the Church of the Nazarene, why I believe personally that uh, we are a community and that we should be a community and that eating, I believe, we should be a family where we don't just drink in, moderations, but we, in moderation, but we believe in complete abstinence from drinking from alcohol. Now, I know that many of you come from Christian traditions where that's not an issue and they believe that it's okay to drink in moderation and I'm in no way trying to belittle or, or say that your church or denomination is wrong, but I just want to give you a background of why we as a community believe abstinence from alcohol is vital. In the Nazarene manual, it states this, In light of the Holy Scriptures and human experience concerning the ruinous consequences of the use of alcohol as a beverage, and in light of the findings of medical science regarding the detrimental effect of both alcohol and tobacco to the body and mind, as a community of faith committed to the pursuit of a holy life, our position and practice is abstinence rather than moderation calling for the church and the denomination to completely abstain from drinking alcohol. Now, we recognize that churches do not necessarily, other churches call for abstinence. In fact, we can't even go to Scripture to necessarily see that. For throughout the Scriptures, we see that alcohol is used, and and even in the Old Testament, we see that alcohol was used as a gift, an offering to the priests. In Numbers 18.12, it says, "...all the best of the oil and all the best of the wine..." And of the grain, the choice produce, give those to the Lord, for I have given them to you. So not only was wine, not only would they drink alcohol and wine, they would actually give it as an offering to the priests and to the temple. We see it in Deuteronomy 12, 17 as well. Nor may you eat within your towns the tithe of your grain, your wine, or your oil, the firstlings of your herd or your flocks, any of your votive gifts that you vow, your free will offerings or your donations. What the verse is saying is that the very best that you have, the first gifts that you receive, those are the ones that you should give. The very best gifts. And included in that is the wine. Psalm 104 says, Wine to gladden the human heart. Oil to make the face shine. And bread to strengthen the human heart. Paul tells young Timothy to add a little wine to the water in a certain town to kill the germs. And of course, in John chapter 2, we read that Jesus is first miracle was turning water into wine. Total abstinence from alcohol is neither commanded in Scripture nor is it given as law. So in biblical terms, again, there is this no absolute call to abstain, but yet we still choose to. One thing that I think we'd all agree on, regardless of the church or denomination you come from, I think universally there is an agreement that it is drunkenness that is the sin. I don't know of a church or a denomination that believes it's okay to get drunk on wine or beer or any other type of alcohol, but maybe there is. I've never heard of it. I'm sure you'll let me know if there is. 
Proverbs 21, wine is a mocker, strong, strong drink of brawler, and who is ever led astray by it is not wise. Romans 13, 13, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Ephesians 5.18 And do not get drunk with the wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. According to Paul's instructions to the Corinthians, it is unacceptable to tolerate drunkenness in the Christian community. Drunkenness is not just prohibited throughout Scriptures, it is strongly prohibited throughout all the Scriptures. And again, I would be surprised if there was a Christian community that would say otherwise. So why do we here at Eastern Nazarene College and many other Christian churches and denominations yet call for and require total abstinence? Why here at ENC are we calling for and requiring that in community? Besides the fact that most of you are under 21 and it would be illegal. Besides that. This is where I think 1 Corinthians chapter 8 can help us. If you want to follow along, uh, just to give you a little background... The church at Corinth is writing Paul to ask for instruction, some help. There's some confusion over certain issues. And one of those issues was eating food that had already been sacrificed to idols. So in the temples, they would take animals and they would sacrifice them to gods or other people, other things that they would worship, and they would give them to the priests that didn't follow the one true God. And they would worship to idols and sacrifice these animals and then eat the best of the meat then that meat would then be sent into community. That meat would then be sent into the marketplace where you could buy it, where you could purchase it. And there was some confusion whether they should purchase it if it's already been used and sacrificed to idols. So there are some in the church that say it's not a problem. You can eat of this meat. It's, it's no issue because you know the one true God. But others would say, no, we, we shouldn't take part at all. We should abstain from eating that meat if it was sacrificed to idols. So Paul is addressing this issue. I'll begin with verses 1 through 3, then jump down to verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by love. Jumping down to verse 9. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't they be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Please listen to these last two verses. It's very powerful. A real call for those who call themselves disciples of Christ. When you sin against them in this way, and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Paul is recognizing and acknowledge, yes, that was worship to idols and to gods, a lower G, if you will, and, and we don't believe in that, and if it makes it to the marketplace, don't worry about it, don't stress about it, it's not a sin, it's not a problem. We know that, we have this knowledge. And Paul is clearly saying, it, it, is, it is not a sin. However, knowledge puffs up and love builds up. And Paul is saying, out of love, there are those who are not as strong as you in the faith. 
There are others who are still young in their faith and they are weak and they are, they are struggling and they are not there yet. And if you eating the meat, especially in the temples, even though it means nothing to you and you are not worshiping the gods, the fact that you are doing that could cause them to stumble in their own faith. It could cause them to stumble in their own faith and hurt their journey. Their weak conscience. And when you, you, when you hurt them and their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. So I am using the example of alcohol today, but there are others that we could use. Maybe some come to your mind that maybe there is something that's not necessarily bad, not necessarily sinful. But if you do it around another that is not as strong as you or not as knowledgeable as you, you are hurting them in their spiritual journey, and that is a sin against Christ. And so we give things up sometimes not just because it's wrong. We give things up sometimes not just because it's a sin. We give things up sometimes because we love another person more than we love ourselves. And Christ has sacrificed and given all for us. And so we lay down our desires for the love of another. We never want to harm anyone on their journey. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so naturally you can see, I hope, how this leads into our belief that we should abstain from alcohol altogether, at least within our own denomination and tradition. You know the statistics. Every year more money is spent promoting the use of alcohol than any other product, yet an important fact about alcohol is often overlooked. Alcohol is a drug, the most commonly used and widely abused psychoactive drug in the world. Now, I could do a Google search and get on World Health Organization and and get on Wikipedia and, and find the statistics, and so can you, but I wanted to go to a stronger source, a real powerhouse of authority, a real think tank. So I called Dr. Brian Massey, and <laughs> notice how they laugh at that when I say think tank. Um, but I asked for Dr. Massey's help because I know in his classes they cover it, and he sent me a very important article from uh, the Lancet a Medical Journal from November 2010. And I can give you a copy of this article. And the title of the article is Alcohol is the Most Harmful Drug. Alcohol is the Most Harmful Drug, followed by Heroin and Crack. Alcohol is the most damaging drug to the, drug to the drinker and others overall. In the medical journal, when all factors are related to self-harm and harm to others are considered, alcohol comes out on top. So what this study, what this research was looking at is not just the harm that it causes the individual, but also the harm it would cause the family and also the harm it causes society. The authors explain that drugs, including tobacco products and alcohol, are major contributors to damage to individuals as well as society as a whole. So in regards to the research study, nine criteria related to harm to an individual from a drug, while six looked at harm to others. And they passed this out to experts all over the world, United Kingdom and, and the United States and other countries. And they asked them to rate the harms that different drugs, including alcohol and heroin and crack and tobacco and a long list, cause individuals, cause families, and cause society. The harms were gathered into five subgroups that covered social, psychological, and physical harms. Scoring was done with points up to 100, with 100 being the most damaging and zero being no damage. Alcohol was first. Out of, a point, out of 100 points, it received 72 as far as damaging. Second was heroin with 55. So we have these experts from all over the world rating what drug is most harmful, not just to the individual, but how it affects community and society and neighborhoods. And alcohol, far and away, more destructive, more deadly. 
than any other drug. Many of you have friends or maybe even come from homes where you've seen how powerful this drug is and it does not just affect one person, it affects an entire family. One thing the study did not look at and that talk about future research is when you start combining drugs and you start combining alcohol with other drugs, then things may change of what is first and, and how the list is, but just the drugs by themselves, alcohol is first. You know the statistics from being in health class and coming from high schools of, of drunk driving statistics. Despite the tireless efforts of thousands of advocates, impaired drivers continue to kill someone every 30 minutes. More than 100,000 deaths are caused by excessive alcohol consumption. You know the statistics. You can look them up. It's not hard to prove that point. And yet many of us come from upbringings that were very legalistic. Verily, everything was a sin or everything was wrong. And anyone that had a sip of alcohol, sometimes we view those as, as drunks and drunkenness. And, and we come at times from traditions that were very judgmental and critical. So as we get older, we begin to reject that legalism. We begin to reject the, the way that we viewed others that was not necessarily Christians. And that, that's happened in all Christian denominations and traditions, the way that many of us were maybe not explicitly taught, but where we picked up on who was good and who was, who was bad. And so we want to reject that because we know that it's not of Christ. We know that we shouldn't look down on another person or where they are in life or what their struggles may be or, or what they believe in. But sometimes growing up in churches, that can be what we somehow take in. And I appreciate that we want to reject that and we want to throw that off and, and we want to love as Christ and care for others as Christ. But somewhere along the way, more and more churches, let me just speak for the evangelical tradition, more and more churches are even throwing out this, this thing that alcohol is, is not really too much of an issue. Now, I'm overstating it. I shouldn't say that way. But more and more churches that once believed that in this call for abstinence now more and more believe that it's sociably acceptable as long as you don't get drunk. And again, I, I understand and, and I, I respect your tradition in churches if that, if that is your belief. And the thing that has changed my mind was not, the thing that changed my mind and helped me think it and look at it in a new way, in a new light, was not the statistics, though they are important, and, and maybe that will really resonate with you. And it wasn't even the Word of God. For some reason, I didn't go to God's Word. I, I didn't go to 1 Corinthians 8, though I should have. And I found myself being a, a young pastor and, and pastoring a small church and and it was there that after meeting a member of our church or a gentleman who started attending our church where everything changed, my perspective changed on the issue. His name was Ralph and he was in his early 50s and his whole life was just beaten up and broken down with alcohol and drug abuse. He was a broken, broken individual, but Christ came into his life and the grace of God was shed abroad in his heart and his life and his Life was changed and transformed. And it didn't happen in our church. It happened in a church in New Jersey before he moved out to Long Island where he started to believe, you know, I have this eight-year-old daughter and I believe God wants me to be a good father. So he quit his job and moved to Long Island to be near his daughter who he didn't even care about the first eight years of her life. But the moment he finds Christ, he realizes God calls me to be a loving, caring father and be in her life. So he moved to Long Island and he found our church and just a great, great man. And I got to know his pastor and, and uh, Ralph is... <laughs> An amazing guy as he was kneeling at the altar and receiving Christ and the pastor was praying over him and the whole church was there. A very, uh, a very conservative church, if you will, a Nazarene church. Ralph, with tears flowing down the eye, his eyes, is crying out to God, looks up, lifts up his hands and says, This is freaking beautiful! <laughs> Only, and I'm not exaggerating, this is true, he didn't use the word freaking. 
He used another F word that I will not utter here today. And the pastor, as he's laughing, telling me, and he says, Corey, you know, at the same time, as I was shocked and we were all stunned for a moment, at the same time, it was one of the most beautiful things we had ever seen. For someone who was in bondage was set free. And it was beautiful. And he was, became a part of our lives and he was in our home and uh, he would, we'd try to give him work. He was a contractor. He was always, always struggling to find work so we'd give him work to do around the house and I'd intentionally break something so we'd call Ralph over to give him a job. And, uh, I like to think I intentionally broke it. Uh, maybe it was another way around. But uh, I was breaking things usual, as usual and Ralph would come over and fix it. And he, and he got to know our daughter. Catherine was just two at the time and he gave her sound advice. He was just a great mentor to her. She was sitting at, he was sitting at the table one day eating a sandwich and Catherine's looking at all the tattoos on his arm and he, he looks at her and Catherine's only two. He's like, Catherine, never ever get a tattoo with your boyfriend's name on it. Never do that. And I'm so thankful he taught that to her at a young age uh, to, to not do that. And then he was into music and, and uh, one night we went, I have, I have so many Ralph stories, I need to stop, but I just want to try to capture the beauty of this man. We uh, were in Starbucks one night where they had an open mic and he loved his guitar and loved to sing and he wrote songs about his life, about sex and drugs and how God brought him out of it and, and they were unique songs. And So we, uh, members of the church, went to hear him sing at a local Starbucks and he's singing a couple songs and of course Catherine's there and again, she loved him and he adored her and he goes, I'm going to send this next song out to little Catherine who came out to cheer on Uncle Ralphie tonight. This song's going out to Catherine. All of a sudden he starts singing, Sex and Drugs! <laughs> it was all I knew! And I'm thinking, I love the fact that he dedicated a song to my daughter. I just don't like the fact it's called Sex and Drugs. But one night as I'm, I'm getting ready to go out, and I said, Ralph, hey, let's go get a bite to eat. Let's just go over to Ruby Tuesdays, or let's go over to Olive Garden. I don't know what the restaurant was, but it was a restaurant where they would have a bar in the restaurant. He said, Pastor Corey, no, no, I'm good. I said, Ralph, I know you, don't, I know you haven't worked this week. I know you don't have food in the fridge. Just let me take you out. Well, no, no, it's all right, Corey. It's all right, Pastor. It's all right, Pastor. Ralph, let me just take you to eat. He says, Pastor, I can't go there. I can't go into any place that has a bar. I'm sorry, Pastor, but it will. I just can't go near a bar. And it was like a Ruby Tuesday. And as much as the Word of God should guide us, as much as statistics should speak clearly, it was Ralph that changed my perspective and understanding. That me and my, me being his pastor could have very easily caused my brother to fall into sin and back into a lifestyle that held him captive for so long. It was Ralph the theologian with his very unique songs and guidance for my two-year-old daughter. It was him that changed my perspective. I come from a line, the McPherson line, a long line of Scottish drunks. And when my dad, shortly after getting out of Vietnam, he uh, met my mom while he was in service at Fort Drum in upstate New York, and someone had set him up on a date, and he says, can we go to a local bar for our first date? And she goes, I don't go to bars. She grew up in a very conservative, very, very conservative uh, church, a beautiful church, beautiful assemblies, God Church in Watertown, New York. And he said, well, let's, let's go dancing. She said, well, no, I don't, I don't dance. <laughs> she said, well, what, let's go to the movies. No, no, I don't, I don't go to the movies. 
Well, what do you do? She said, I bowl. <laughs> You're laughing at my family. This is all a true story. I'm not making this up. <laughs> and uh, my father was getting ready to be shipped back to Germany, and they'd only been dating a, a couple weeks. And he asked her to, to marry him. And um, she says, Well, you have to get my father's permission. And my grandfather, in his wisdom, said, I'll only let you marry my daughter if you receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Amen. Wouldn't you know? <laughs> this is all true. I'm not making this up. <laughs> Wouldn't you know that that Sunday in church, when the pastor said, does anyone want to come and receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, my father came forward and he whispered to my mom the whole time, is this right? And I said, what I'm supposed to do? Is this what your dad wants? And came forward and prayed and Receive Christ, but it wasn't really a true, genuine commitment to Christ. And as the effects of the war and still dealing with things that he had experienced in Vietnam, the alcohol took over again like it did his, his father and his siblings and his aunts and uncles and the whole family. And that long tradition of alcoholism was taking a hold of, of his life and his, his wife's and my family, which, which I would eventually come into the family. But one night, a pastor from Lima Baptist Church paid a call because uh, my mom convinced him to visit just one church one Sunday, and he didn't care to go, didn't, doesn't remember the service much, but my mom fell out the visitor card, and the pastor came to visit, and, and there, that night, in the living room, something the pastor said that was anointed by God, he, he prayed to receive Jesus Christ, and in a moment, stopped drinking alcohol. was healed in a moment. I know that's not the story for everyone. For many, it is a long battle and a long struggle. But for him and in his life, it was in a moment that God touched and healed. And it can happen in a moment. I like what uh, Dr. Nancy Detweiler said when she was sharing her story coming from similar family backgrounds. She said to me, and I'll never forget it, she says, these students need to know that God can change things. And God can change things in my life. And so why would I, coming from a heritage that has known nothing but a bondage to alcohol, why would I want to reintroduce that back into my home? Why would I want to introduce that to my children? Ralph changed my mind. Looking at my family changed my mind and helped me see things in a new way. And then it was a, a Reverend James Meek, the senior pastor at Salem Baptist Church in Chicago's South Side, a state senator in Illinois' 15th district and the executive vice president of the Rainbow Push Coalition, had a profound understanding for me on the effects that alcohol has on community and issues of justice. Pastor Meeks, as I heard him tell the story several years ago, and now the church is about 20,000 on Chicago's south side, talks about how drugs were controlling the community in the neighborhood and the church wanted to respond and they didn't know what to do, so they strategically placed grandmothers on street corners all over the south side of Chicago. And the grandmothers would just sit there and have Bible study and just pray, but just get their chairs out and just sit on every corner on the south side of Chicago because the church had the understanding that the gangbangers and the drug dealers would not disrespect the grandmothers. And it changed the neighborhood. And the drug dealing no longer had a control in the neighborhood. But the next thing he decided to do, and they believed they needed to do, they needed to shut down the liquor stores that were literally on every corner on the south side of Chicago. Every corner. And the, this church would may seem foolish to you by placing grandmothers late at night on dark street corners to fight against drugs and 
to try to close down every single liquor store in their district. They may seem foolish, but the Bible talks about being a fool for Christ's sake. And voters in the Ninth Ward approved a ballot measure, a ballot measure on November 3rd, 1993, that closed 25 bars and liquor stores on the south side of Chicago. Please don't lose sight of the fact that the alcohol industry is the most predatory industry in the world. This is a social justice issue. Why would we even want to support an industry that hurts people, that preys upon neighborhoods and communities and destroys them? Why support such an industry? So as I look at my life and these examples of friends like Ralph and my family heritage and communities and neighborhoods that Reverend Meeks is trying to care for and shepherd and pastor, why wouldn't we want to choose abstinence from alcohol? Think of your own life. Think of your own family or maybe extended family or friends of family. I think most of us can think of situations where alcohol has destroyed and held people captive. Has harmed others. Has harmed families. Has harmed neighbors. Yes, has become a stumbling block. And that stumbling block can destroy a life, a family, and a neighborhood. From a knowledge standpoint, you can certainly stand up here using Scripture as a resource to justify your case for drinking alcohol in moderation. can't dispute that. ENC's response is not a response of dismissing that knowledge, but our experience, our tradition, our reasoning, and the Scriptures tell us that the most loving response we can make is to abstain. The most loving response can be to abstain because you do not know if another brother or sister is struggling. You do not know their battles. You do not know their struggles. You do not know their family history. You don't know if another is struggling. So I want to encourage you, student body, to just because you go to the parties that members of this community throw that serve alcohol, just because you may go to those parties and don't drink, can I suggest to you that your presence there is making a very powerful statement to those who may be here struggling over the issue of alcohol. And that if they go there because you are there, even though you are not drinking, if they go there because you invited them, and you feel you're setting a great example because you are not drinking alcohol, can I suggest that you are being a stumbling block? And you could cause that person to stumble and trip back into a lifestyle that destroys and harms. We need to look out and care for one another and lay things down not do anything that causes another to harm, to sin against them or to sin against Christ. And I do understand that as you graduate from ENC and go out and there will be different issues and different circumstances that come your way and challenges. And recently, oh, a few years ago, a, a friend of mine asked when I was on Long Island, we had a, one of the churches was doing bagels and Bibles and they'd have a morning Bible study around bagels before going to work. And he says, Corey, none of my friends... None of my friends from my softball team from work will come to Bibles and bagels, but they will come to beer and Bibles. Would you come and lead that? Now, we were just getting ready to move here, and I told Timothy, and you know, I said, wow, you know, I'd never even thought of beers and Bibles, and some may call it theology on tap. Maybe you've seen that. That's true. That's not. You guys think I make stuff up to be funny. I'm serious. And... And so there's that part of me where I see Timmy's friends are not going to come to Bagels and Bibles or Sunday church. And so I really wrestled with a pastor, even though we were moving, I really wrestled, what would I do? 
And I think in that context, I want to be honest with you, I think in that context, pastor in a small church where my small church of 60 people knew where I stood on issues, knew what I believed, knowing that Ralph was in the community, I'd have an opportunity to explain to Ralph why I was doing it. I have an opportunity to explain to the board why I believe it would be important to go to this. I need to be honest with you, I think in that context, I would go. just feels important to me. I, I do think that I would go. But if a year passed, or years passed, And these men and women that were attending beers and Bibles never made any progress beyond that. I would go to try to be a a light of Christ and try to maybe get them into the church community and, and, and get them into Christian fellowship. And that would be my hope. But I was pastoring a small church so I could explain clearly. Here in a larger setting, I, I don't think I would do that as chaplain because I don't have an opportunity to explain it in detail to each and every one of you and, and that would cause confusion in community. I, I give this example to say I know there will be times in your life where you will be conflicted on, in how to respond to issues and not wanting to make sure you don't cause someone to stumble but yet at the same time go to where people are in their brokenness and pain and help them. There will be challenges like that. I don't want to give an easy answer. I don't have the easy answer. All I know is this. I have friends as they pastor when they visit first-time visitors of the church and the guest cards are filled out and they respond. I have friends who are pastors that do this. They first ask, why don't we go out and get a beer together? I am so thankful the pastor of Lima Baptist Church did not look at that first-time visitor's card, call my father and say, why don't we go get a beer? Instead, he entered into our home I wasn't even born yet, but he entered into the home and shared the saving message of Jesus Christ. And my father found healing. And I know that's not the way it works for everyone, and maybe there will be those times to do the beers and Bibles and and try to meet people where they are in their pain or their brokenness, but please, I, 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 I beg of you never to be one that causes another person to stumble. And don't just assume the other doesn't struggle just because you don't struggle. A few years ago, the a cappella choir asked me to pray for them before they went out on tour, and we'll, we'll be praying for them on Friday as they'll be out on tour. And before we prayed and had communion together, uh, they gathered together and sang a song to prepare their hearts and minds for communion. And um, the words, uh, the song is the servant's song, and the, the words go like this. We are pilgrims on a journey. We are travelers on the road. We are here to help each other walk the mile and bear the load. We are here to serve and love and care for one another. The call for a life and to require a community to abstain from alcohol as a beverage is countercultural in many ways. We recognize that. And it is, in a small way, a very small way, asking you to offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, Though I am free with respect to all, I have made myself a slave to all, a servant to all, laying down his rights, laying down our rights, for the sake of others. I lay down my rights for others for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not a legalistic decision for me anymore. Not anymore. It is within a framework of fulfilling the law of love and care for friends, care for families, and care for communities and neighborhoods that are being oppressed and preyed upon by a very predatory industry. It's not a legalistic decision. It is not a rule. The glory of God must be the Christian's objective in everything. Love God. Love your neighbor. So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed 
by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never again eat meat, so I will not cause them to fall. May we be a community that never causes anyone to fall or stumble into sin that can so easily entangle them. Let us pray. I'm not on the disciplined side of this community, Lord. But we know there are parties. I don't come before this community today knowing of any situation this semester. I don't know of any student that has been caught with alcohol. I don't know of anyone that has thrown parties. I don't, I don't know any of that. But what I do know, and what I give you praise for, God, is that there are students in this chapel this morning who chose Eastern Nazarene College because they are an alcoholic and want to find freedom. I know there are students in this chapel this morning that have addictions that are so powerful and so strong. They've come to Eastern Nazarene College in the hopes that they might find freedom and wholeness and help and restoration. May we be that community, Lord. May we be that community. Father, if there's anything in my life, if there's anything in my home, if there's anything in my office as I serve here as chaplain, if there's anything in the dorm rooms, in the classrooms, that is causing another to stumble, will you reveal it to us, Father? Please reveal it to us. I focused on one issue, but I know there are others that someone could stumble back into and, and be so easily entangled again. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, give us the strength and the courage and the wisdom to live a holy life that glorifies you in all that we do and all that we say, laying down our rights and privileges because we love you and we love our neighbor. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You are dismissed. Go in peace.